Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap here at the end of a roller coaster week with my good friend, portfolio manager Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how you doing? I'm doing great. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you, of course. Yeah, I guess in theory, the country gets a long weekend here. I'm pretty sure you and I don't get to enjoy it given yeah. our work schedules, but, <laughs> but you, slacker, just took vacation. How was it? Um, actually wound up, uh, I was supposed to go to Amsterdam with my wife and, uh, the trip got canceled. So actually just wound up working all week. So, <laughs> oh gosh. so it wasn't even a staycation. It was just a stay at home and work. Yeah. For the most part, we did run down to the beach for a couple of days, but that was it. I was still, I was still writing articles <laughs> while I was down there. So again, uh, not much different than the usual work day. You know, it's funny. I remember, um, way back a million years ago, um, seeing, a commercial from AT&T, which was sort of trying to blow our minds about where technology was going. And they said, what if you, so Tom Selleck was narrating this and he said, what if one day you could send a fax from the beach? <laughs> and did we yeah. think back then that sounded crazy. And now, you know, you're at the beach and writing articles filled with charts and all that stuff. So I don't know, technology can be amazing and a big curse, right? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's, I, I, you know, I was having this conversation with my younger daughter uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I was telling her, I was like, you know, back when I was growing up, you know, our parents had to have a commercial that reminded them at 10 o'clock, do you know where your kids are? Because it was pretty much get out of the house and don't come home. The only, the only rule was, you know, you had to be home by the time the streetlights came on and, you know, be in for dinner when the when somebody whistled for dinner. But other than that, you know, you were outside playing. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. There was no nothing. And, and you know, we had to make do with that, you know, what is. And, um, you know, that's very hard for them to fathom. But I kind of long for those days where life was a lot simpler back then. We just didn't have the issues. Yeah. When you went on vacation, you were on vacation. Vacation. Work, couldn't catch up to you. Yeah. Um, that point really... Uh, triggers a, a conversation I've actually had several times in the past week. I just made a note. So when we get to the latter half of this discussion, if we have time to revisit it, because there's actually some really, I think, important um, sort of societal impact to to that commercial that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, but people will shoot me if we don't get through all the, you know, uh, uh, chart porn and stuff beforehand. So let's let's get that out of the way, and then we'll yeah. we'll, we'll get to that. Well, real um, real quick, real quick before you jump into it, I just you know yeah. I do this every year because this is an important weekend. It's Memorial Day weekend, and this is as opposed to Veterans Day, where we give our respects and thanks to the veterans who are still alive. Monday is Memorial Day, where we give our respects and thanks to those who have sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice for right. all these freedoms that we have and the things that we do. And this goes back to 1776, the Civil War, where the Republicans were fighting the Democrats over slavery because the Democrats wanted to keep slavery. The Republicans wanted to repeal it all the way through Vietnam, all the way through, you know, even Iraq and and, and everything else we've been through. And if it wasn't for those veterans that have given that ultimate sacrifice, we wouldn't be able to have all of this freedom that we have. And that freedom, you know, is the ability to have all these different views and opinions and everything else that, you know, has divided the country, but that's still part of the freedom that, that we have because of what that is, has been given. So don't forget on Monday while you're barbecuing and enjoying your family and having a great time, spend a moment just to remember why you can do that. 
All right. I'm so glad you did that. Yes. You know, we spent a lot of time bitching and moaning, we, you and I, but also the country about many things and the freedom to do that has been given by the world. Yeah. Um, and again, we we, we got to get to the, the, the economic stuff in just a second. But I was literally just having this discussion last night. Um, with uh, I was with a teacher who was sort of talking about, you know, what a tough time it is to teach right now. One, because they're they're so vulnerable with cancel culture and wokeism. They have to be very careful about what they say or how they discipline kids. It's a totally different ballgame than it was in previous generations. But about how kids have so much anxiety and, you know, there's a lot to be fearing in today's world. And then there's truth in much of that. But it's kind of like, you know, they're you know, first off, having anxiety isn't like this new condition. It's not an ailment. It's, it's a human emotion. And we've railed about this a lot. But like, yeah, there are things to be fearful about. But you know what? I mean, it's no, really nothing worse than worrying about dying in the nuclear hailstorm during the Cold War, or getting, you know, shipped yeah. off to Vietnam, or having to go serve in World War II and storm the beaches of Normandy, or, you know, fighting in the mustard gas trenches, you know, of war. I mean, it's just... There have been so many other times in history where we have faced, I think, greater existential, immediate existential threats that we sometimes forget our perspective there. And to your point, yeah. we're able to do all this. We're able to be, we're, we're able to, to, to expect the world to stop on a dime because we have anxiety today, <laughs> largely <laughs> because people created such a safe environment for us by making all these sacrifices. You, you know, okay. it, it, real, real quick, I got, I got a comment on that because uh, we were, my son and I uh, were watching The Kingsman. Uh, last night, and it was just it was on regular television, right? So we went to commercial break, and there were five commercials in a row for antidepressants from different companies. And my son looked at me, he's like, "What is going?" And he's you know he's twenty one, twenty two now. And he's like, "What is going on? What's the deal?" And you know, with all these antidepressants, I said, "Well, I said this is how we you know people deal with stress these days is they've got to do this." See, back when I was growing up, you just got slapped upside the head and said, "Get on with life," and that was it, right? You know, there wasn't all these antidepressants, but yeah, to your point about anxiety, it's it's uh, certainly part of how we deal with things today is just, oh, here's a pill for you. I was going to say, you tell your son, son, don't worry about it. Just take your Zola. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's never been an option in my household. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, look, um, into what happened this week, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, you know, looking at the market action, we're pretty much right back where we started the beginning of the week. Um, but we had a, a pretty big dip and then a pretty big recovery uh, as this week went on. Um, what seems to be driving this re big recovery late in the week is optimism around uh, debt ceiling deal. Um, we're waking up this morning to headlines that hey, they might be close. They you know seem to come to some preliminary agreement on some terms last night. Uh, tell us what you know about it. Well, uh, let's go back uh, a few weeks when you and I were talking about the whole debt ceiling debacle back then. You know, everybody was freaking out. The debt ceiling is going to cause this massive default. And I said, don't worry about it because it's a non-event and we're going to get it resolved and everybody's going to cave in the last minute to get it passed. And that's exactly what's happened at this point. Uh, the spending cuts that are now on the table are 0.02% of GDP um, a $10 billion cut to the $80 billion uh, funding of the IRS. And a yeah, few- in, Increased funding in the IRS, yeah, I believe. 80, yeah. yeah, correct, and $80 billion. So, so the Republicans were like, all against this is like, how can you, how dare you spend $80 billion bolstering the IRS, hiring all these IRS agents? So 
you know, they can claim a feather. They got it cut by a whole whopping 10 billion. The IRS went, okay. Um, so, you know, again, at the end of the day, we're going to get this passed. It's going to get done. And the markets are rallying on it. Actually, this week was extremely bullish uh, from a market perspective. We started the week last Friday. We talked about the breakout. We had a breakout to the upside. Uh, you had a, a very nice correction this week on light volume back to the rising moving average. Um, and then from, from that point, we, we turn right back up and we're going to close close to or at, we're a little bit early in the day right now on Friday. Um, we're we're kind of um, having a nice rally today. So we should close at or close to that previous breakout level. Again, we got a little bit of resistance there, but overall the action this week, obviously a lot of that driven by the AI um, the AI charge on back of NVIDIA's earnings. But, you know, that's, uh, you know, the market's still in very bullish mode right now. Okay, um, that AI is my next bullet here. R real quick on the debt ceiling. Um, it seems, I think, that they also are talking about a two-year cap on spending for the yeah. government, which, as I understand, the Republicans started with a 10-year cap on yeah. spending. So it's a pretty big walk back. Um, and we just should flag for folks that even though the headlines today are optimistic, and who knows, maybe this deal does go through, um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, has a relatively tenuous hold on his position. Um, as we all remember, you know, he he lost like, I don't know, 17 votes before he finally <laughs> got approved as Speaker. And the Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party they're really the ones that are the budget hawks. And the big question right now is, is will they accept the terms that McCarthy seems to have hammered out overnight here? Um, and I think it's a big question mark right now. I mean, yeah, you know. no, it, it, it is. And there's there's a potential this still gets you know, shut down initially. But, you know, again, it's still going to get passed at some point. The only question is- Yeah, just, there's going to be something passed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And so the question is just who buckles more at this point. Um, again, the Democrats have played a, a very smart hand here. They've done a, a very good job of playing poker. You have to give them credit where credit is due. They didn't budge. They didn't give in. They stuck to their guns. And Republicans, as usual, have no backbone and they caved on everything. So, um, you know, we'll eventually get that done. Um, and again, the markets will go on from here. Yeah. Um, so one other thing to note, too, in I think we talked about two, two years of spending cuts, I, I believe that uh, that means that the debt ceiling won't really be revisited until again, until post the 2024 election. Right. Um, and I'm a little surprised, like I'm, I'm not a political analyst. I don't know the details of what's going on there, uh, but usually it's the party that is out of power that really digs its heels in at these, you know, these showdowns because they, they want the markets to get nervous. They want there to be pressure from the public put on the administration to get a deal done. Uh, and it seems like, you know, the Republicans had some pretty strong advantages in their court this time, including, you know, being able to maybe force this issue again during an election year, which is something the administration would absolutely not want to do. So you'd think that they would hold out. They would want the markets to be in a corrective mode. They would want the administration to really be sweating bullets. It didn't seem like we got to that point. I thought we were going to get down to like, you know, the 11th hour with a the, the the bomb clock is now down to like one or two seconds before you cut the green wire, right? Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, well, no, it's 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 very much okay. Look, and the market didn't ever buy it either. So you know, despite all these rhetoric headlines from Janet Yellen that we're going to default on our debt, which, as I said before, was never going to be an issue. 
we weren't going to default on our debt. Um, but despite all these headlines of catastrophic outcomes, we don't raise the debt ceiling. The market never bought it. So markets has been the markets have been doing fine. They've remained in a bullish trend. Um, economic data is improving on the services side. So again, you've got some some relatively bullish optimism there. So so the the financial markets didn't put any pressure on the Democrats. And again, the economy is holding in there very well. Uh, just printed a 1.3% growth rate in the first quarter. Employment still remains low. Jobless claims came down from the recent kind of hot peak that it put in. So again, no to your point, there's no pressure on the Democrats to do anything because everything's fine as, as far as their position is. And that's why they've been able to really hold firm to their guns because they're not getting any pressure at this point. Right. And again, we'll move on from this topic, but like, I just wonder what, so why are the Republicans making a deal right now? Why not drag I, it out further, right? I, I would have. Uh, yeah. Again, again no. Well, if you were a, if you were a you know bastard politician who's willing to throw the public under the bus for your gains, but yes. <laughs> well, no, no, and it's not even that because again, you know who who's going to get hurt here, right? So again, let's go back to the basics of this. Mandatory spending has got to be paid. A 1995 bill says Social Security's got to get paid regardless. It doesn't matter what happens. Social Security gets paid. Interest payments on the debt get made. Um, we're going to have to close parks. We're going to have to lay off 900,000 government workers. There's the pressure on the Democrats, right? You say, yep, yeah, I'm not raising it. Let the thing, hey, we're going to go past the debt ceiling debate. You're going to have to shut down the government. That's on you, man. Um, and once you have to start laying off you know, government employees, and all of a sudden the Democrats are now under a lot of pressure. Now, of course, the Democrats have played a great game. Uh, and again, they are much better at the media. Republicans suck at messaging, period. That's the only way to put it. <laughs> Democrats are great at this game. They've already been blaming, oh, if the government shuts down, it's all the Republicans' fault because they want to cut spending and all this other stuff. But again, as 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 you know, the, the Republicans have have the opportunity and the ability because the markets and the, the bond market, the credit markets, nobody's really worried about the payment on the debt. I mean, the markets are telling you there's no risk of default. In the, in the books. If we go back to 2011, when the S&P Global downgraded the debt from AAA to AA, and, the, and, the, and basically on the verge of a government shutdown over the debt ceiling debate with Obama back then, the market declined by 20%. And that's what forced the Democrats into the position of coming up with this bipartisan commission to come up with a trillion dollars worth of spending cuts in the budget. Right. And, and that was set with a timer that at 2013, if the bipartisan commission didn't come up with these cuts, they would be automatically enacted. That was a very good deal that was hammered out by the Republicans back then. But they had support from both the bond market and the, and, and the financial markets to, to make that deal. They don't have it this time. Right. Right. Um, totally agree. And look, that is the leverage point right now. If you were the Republicans, and again, you and I are scratching our heads, maybe you know, yeah. we don't know why they're not really using it. My, my point about slamming the politicians was, is, you know, I think we're just all super tired about how the only time we really get serious about this stuff is when the debt ceiling comes up. Like, I would just rather have these guys hammer out a bipartisan agreement normally and not have to take us to the brink of this kabuki theater that we talk about all the time. Well, anyway. the, 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 and you'd have to talk about going back to 1940 when the division between both parties was very, very small. In fact, both parties worked together on getting bills passed all the time. We have the highest level of partisanship in Congress ever in history right now. In fact, the the ability to reach across the aisles and work toward, even the you know, Reagan was famous for reaching across the aisle to get deals done. Um, but ever since ever since really Reagan was in office, that by that partisan split within 
the Republicans and Democrats in Congress have have basically devastated any ability for really compromise and and political you know kind of a political work of getting the economy growing in the right direction. Yeah, it's so funny how the the old days of you know uh, Reagan and Tip O'Neill you know duking it out. Uh, during business hours and then going and getting a beer together afterwards, yeah. right? It just seems so incomprehensible in today's environment. But exactly. again, not a political channel. We're an economics channel. We'll get back to the markets, <laughs> folks. I know, um, it's, it's, but this all has to do with where we're going to wind up, which is- Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it bears on the markets and obviously a whole bunch of things. Um, all right. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, a, a big part of the recovery this week was, was relief that, oh, a deal might be getting done, but it also- is still largely being driven by the euphoria. And there's no, I mean, I think I'm understating it now when I say euphoria around AI. Um, the NASDAQ is now, uh, it's at a new high for the year as we're talking here. It's up 25% for the year. Uh, pretty amazing year, especially after getting beaten up last year. Um, but NVIDIA, you know, you, you, you just alluded to, they had a really strong earnings beat. They had an amazing Earnings call. Nvidia is now trading around 384 bucks. The time we're recording this, that's up 80 bucks a share since just their earnings call on Wednesday, and it's up 161 percent since the beginning of the year. Um, and over 200, and over 200 percent from its lows of October. Okay, so 200 percent from the October lows. I mean, just an amazing return here. And um, you and I have talked a little bit about, you know previous weeks <laughs> with those share prices now seem quaint compared to today's uh but in previous weeks about just how um fantastical and i really want to underscore fantasy <laughs> in the word fantastical uh these valuations are because nvidia has to make a ridiculous amount of money for the next several decades at a ridiculously high profit margin to to, to justify these prices so um i mean actually actually i actually did uh, a report on this on tuesday on the website talking about the AI and actually Nvidia will have to own 100% of the GPU market over the next 10 years to justify its current price to sales and it'll still be expensive. Okay, and that's where I was going with this. So um, it feels like they really like literally have to invent cold fusion, you know, uh, to, to justify these prices. So uh, in your report there, you had a couple of charts showing uh, the extremity of the overvaluation of uh, NVIDIA. And, and maybe if, if you can remember them, and I'll try to bring them up on I the screen. Actually here. Have, I actually have them right in front of me. Great. So, so let me share. Absolutely. Hold on one second. Actually, uh, if you don't mind, I want to back up just a little bit and we'll talk about the market, but also NVIDIA as well. Great. Back up and... Yeah, and maybe when you're talking about it, the other related question ahead to this was, I know you've expressed concerns about the market being really narrow right now in terms of yeah. uh, the companies that are driving it and how that's generally not a good sign. So if that's still the case, if you could sort of tell us what the current state of market breadth yeah. is. So, so, you know, right now it's important to understand we still have this passive indexing effect that's going on in, in the markets. And, you know, as a function, 10 stocks make up 32%, almost 33% of the S&P 500. So for every dollar that goes into a passive ETF, you're talking about 30 cents of that going into just those 10 stocks, NVIDIA being one of those. And this is this is an important point because, oops, sorry, wrong direction. Uh, let me go in the other direction here, get it right way. Um, you can, and so the black line is the year-to-date return of the S&P 500. 
And you can see that Apple, Microsoft, Google, which there's two parts of Google, uh, Amazon, NVIDIA, you can see the chart there, um, Meta, which has been the other big driver, and Tesla. Those stocks, that's where all the return of the S&P 500 has come from this year is just from those stocks. And in fact, if you strip those stocks out of the index, the index would be down 2% for the year, not a nine and a half, almost 10. So, you know, that's the issue. And, and you know, so when you start looking at the spread between the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ equal weighted. So think about the index. The NASDAQ is market cap weighted. So the biggest stocks have the biggest impact on the S&P. NVIDIA is now almost a trillion dollar company. Compare that to an equal weighted index. You have the largest spread right now. Um, of oh, It's actually 13% now. When I did this chart on Tuesday, it was only 11%. It's now 2% more <laughs> just in a week. But that spread is now the largest we've ever had between uh, an index that would be equally weighted, taking out that market cap weighting effect of those top 10 stocks and equal weight those in the index versus that market cap index. And so it just goes to show you that there's really a bifurcated market here and when you take a look at, this is uh, from our SimpleVisor platform, we have analysis in there that we've talked about before, which analyzes the relative uh, positioning of uh, sectors relative to the S&P. So in other words, you know, what's oversold relative to the S&P, what's overbought relative to the S&P. And normally you have about an even split of, of sectors that are kind of performing better than the S&P versus those performing worse. We have a very bifurcated market. Technology and communications are way, way over uh, outperforming the index versus every other sector, which is really dragging. And so, again, this goes back to this conversation uh, about um, the issue itself in terms of this bifurcated market, what's happening here. And, of course, a function of that is that, as we've talked about before, liquidity is increasing. And, and the, despite the fact we talk about, oh, Fed's interest rates are up and quantitative tightening, liquidity has still been coming back into the market. And that's providing that lift for equities at this point. But this was this is a chart of NVIDIA. Now, now NVIDIA, this, this chart was on Tuesday before they reported their uh, report on Thursday. And at that time, NVIDIA was trading at 32 times price to sales. Now, I've got a link in there to the old Scott McNeely we've talked about here a million times at 10 times price to sales. Basically, you can't pay anybody anything, including the IRS, labor, payroll, taxes. None of that gets paid. No dividends. A hundred cents of every dollar has to go to the shareholder just to justify a 10 times price to sales. NVIDIA was trading at 32 times price to sales on Tuesday. It's now 39 times price to sales today. <laughs> and, what, and, what it, and what it shows you, though, is, is that I projected out, they have to grow their revenue. On, so the stock price can never move. At 385 the stock price can never move again for the next 10 years. And they will have to grow revenue un, uninterrupted. They can't have one down quarter, one down month, one down year in revenue. There can't be any economic slowing in the AI chase they're going to have to grow their revenue at 1% a month, which they've never done, every month from here on into eternity. And that will only lower their price to sales to roughly 10 times price to sales. And so this just kind of shows you, you know, how much people are putting into this idea of what this company can generate. And yes, 
their revenue report was great. They said they're going to they're going to they're going to increase their revenue by 50% next quarter. That's awesome. They've got to then do that 50% quarter after that and after that and after that and and eventually the problem becomes is that there is a limit to the size of the GPU market and they are not the only provider of GPUs but they will have to literally own 100% of the GPU market just to bring their price of sales down to 10 times, which is still massively expensive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I want to hand it to you again, because you had been warning people uh, that, um, yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom data out there, and we're still going to talk about some of that in a little bit. But um you know, once uh, once once a mania gets going, and and you know, we talked the last couple of weeks about uh, sort of echoes of the past and what we're seeing now in AI, that what we saw in the dot com boom and stuff like that, that it can really go a lot longer and a lot farther uh, than folks can expect, and uh, we're in the process of seeing that here with Nvidia. I mean, this is this this is just as bad, if not worse, than what we saw in the dot com bubble. Yeah, actually, this is, uh, you know, very similar to what we saw, you know, starting in 1999. And and again, if you kind of think back to what the market did last year is a good example, right? So we had a 20% correction in the markets last year. Um, If you go back to 1998, we had long-term capital management, Asian Contagion, then long-term capital management. That was where um, long-term capital management was a $100 billion, uh, basically, leveraged fund. And the Fed had to wind up bailing them out because they were worried about the impact on the global financial markets if that if long-term capital went under. Today, long-term capital management is a drop in the bucket compared to people like Silicon Valley Bank, and yet the markets don't blink anymore. So just kind of tells you where we are. But so if you look at 1998 as 2022, then the dot-com the, the rally really took off in 1999. And we're tracking that kind of parabolic move uh, with AI stocks, just like we saw back in 1999 with dot-com. And it's interesting, uh, for instance, on Friday, uh, Microchip Technologies was up like 27% on Friday because they said, oh, we're going to be focusing more on AI. Mm-hmm. And so this was very reminiscent. And you'll remember this, Adam, back in 1999. It was, well, I don't have anything to do with the internet, but hey, we're going to launch an internet strategy and change our name to such and such.com and launch a website. And the stock would be off like 100% in the next day or two. So right. we're, we're, we're localsandwichshop.com. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and so, you know, there that's kind of the, the similarities we're getting in the, in the markets today. And it's, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. It's what's going on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. As I, I mentioned, uh, you know, we, we were going to shift to the domain to wealthy on AI going forward. But maybe, exactly. we'll call it, maybe we'll just call it wealth AON and we'll just spell it with AI and at the end. Yeah. I, I like it. We'll have to change our name from RIA advisors to RAI advisors. Uh, that's even better. I love it. <laughs> RAI. That's perfect. Of course, then I'm just going to be talking to like a Max Headroom version of you, you know, exactly. going forward. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. Um, so, well, I mean, let me just ask this because this is on everybody's mind, which is like, well, all right, well, where where do you think we are in the bubble lands, right? Are we just at the beginning? Should we pile in and ride this thing and get out before it implodes? Or could this one be a lot more vicious and short uh, than previous ones? Uh, the, the the thing about these kind of these moves is that they can last a lot longer than you expect. You know, if you, you take a look at the chart of the Nasdaq 
um, today versus 1999, we're probably in the April, May, June, you know, uh, position of that rally, which lasted through the end of the year. In fact, uh, the, the NASDAQ had its most parabolic move at the last, you know, October, November, December of 1999 and into the three months of, of, 20, of, of 2000. So, you know, and that's just assuming that we're having an exact ana analogy, right? And that's, you just don't know that. So, um, A, it's not too soon to get in um, to this rally. The, the market itself is, is not really running as much as a few stocks in the index. I'd be a little reticent about chasing Nvidia at this point. You know, if you if you don't own it, it it's it's hard to buy it here. Um, you're going to get a correction at some point uh, of some amount. You know, five percent, ten percent, whatever. I would use you know dips in the stock to accumulate a position if you if you want to own that stock. There's a lot of other you know companies that are going to play and participate. You know, we bought a position in AMD. Um, a couple of, about three, four weeks ago, we're already up like 35% in that stock. So it's just, you know, the, the insanity rush is there, but you're going to have, the markets are pretty overbought here on a short-term basis on, on those stocks right now, not on a big bulk of stocks, but on those stocks in the technology and communication space, they're all two, three, and four standard deviations overbought. So you're going to need something to give you, and, and you'll get it. We even had this during the, the, the 1999 bubble. You'll get little corrections along the way. Use those corrections to buy into it. But then, but importantly, don't forget to sell as well, <laughs> right? you got to remember that part of it. You can buy it. Just remember, you got to sell it at some point. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about this last week, but like, um, you know, in a bubble, you got to just rely on things like trailing stops or whatever, right? Because nobody knows when the bell gets rung at the top. And, exactly. you know, the, 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 the bursting can be vicious and swift. Exactly. Okay. Um, but it sounds like, um, and we're going to get to your trades later on, but it sounds like you guys are are, are still in the pool. And in, in past weeks, you were saying you were beginning to add, you know, you're beginning to take some of that cash off the sidelines because you were getting more and more buy signals. Um, okay. Where are you in that process? Are you still taking still doing some cash and adding in? Yeah, yeah, still, still buying, and we've got uh, a, a good list of stocks that we're going to be adding two hundred. So you know, we're, we're look, we own Apple, we own Microsoft, we own Google, we own Amazon, um, we own AMD. We are we own a lot of those stocks. Unfortunately for us, we don't own enough of them. Um, but it's it's you know, and what I mean by that is is that in order for us to benchmark. The, the market right now, we that those could be the only five stocks that we own. And so we're, ne we're never going to own enough uh, in a 60-40 allocation to benchmark the S&P 500. But we do own those stocks and we're going to look for, we're looking for pullbacks uh, to add to those positions and increase size and weights in those positions. We're also looking at a couple of other companies that we want to add in that space that are fundamentally sound. They're going to be participants in AI as it continues to evolve. Look, every company is gonna be using AI to some degree. It's only a function of time, whether it's a service company or a, 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 you know, a manufacturing company, whatever it is, AI is gonna be part, an integral part of that business at some point. Otherwise you're not gonna be in business. That's just gonna be the, the reality of the situation we get down the road. Um, so we're, we're looking for those companies to, to add into it. Uh, but we still own, you know, companies that are not in favor right now, unfortunately, and that's dragging on performance. But look, I mean, we're all getting older, so we still own healthcare. Uh, we have a very small weight in in uh, public storage uh, company, which is, you know, personal storage of of stuff, and we all have more stuff and places to store it's necessary. So we own a position in that. 
Most of our companies pay dividends, which are a big part of our portfolio structure. Um, and, and so there's there's other areas right now, whether it's defense or energy or, you know, we, regionally, we recently added two small regional banks, uh, PNC. I shouldn't say small. They're not small. There's a small compared to JP Morgan. Um, right. But we added, uh, you know, Truist Financial and PNC Bank um, in, in that space as well because we didn't have any financial exposure. We've added some small weights to energy over the last couple of weeks. Um, because energy is getting fairly oversold here and out of favor. And again, if you go back to that relative performance chart that I showed you from SimpleVisor, um, you're going to get a rotation in the markets from those out of favor sectors to replace what's leading. And, and a good reminder of this, by the way, is that in 2022, Adam, let me ask you a question real quick. In 2022, what were the two most hated sectors of the market? Nobody wanted them. Uh, well, near the end, it was the banks. Yeah, it was technology and communications. Right. What, what was the most loved sector of the market in 2022? It was up 40% in the year while the market was down 22. Energy. What is the worst performing sector this year? Energy. What's the two best performing sectors this year? Technology and communications. So the point is, and this is always, this isn't an anomaly. This is how it always happens. The sectors that everybody hates become the sectors that everybody loves for one reason or another and vice versa. So this rotation will occur, maybe not this year, but oh, next year or the year after, you're going to see a rotation in the market out of these stocks that are favored back into the stocks that are unfavored, which is why we continue to run an allocation uh, in our portfolios. Okay. And, and you're, you know, you're, you're underscoring just a, a great fundamental of investing. Um, which is, you know, you make your money when you buy, right? You, you, you yeah. try to buy at good values, right? And, and so you're, you're not, you know, buying NVIDIA right now is just clearly not a good value, right? <laughs> it's you, not you a might good still value. make some money on the speculative froth, but it is not cheap by any metric. Um, in fact, it is wildly overpriced by almost everyone. But focusing on buying where value is being uncovered, you know, yeah, it doesn't necessarily pay off the next day, but it, you, you know, you're, you're you're securing yourself that future gain by buying now. It, it, it when it's the valuation is the price is below. Sorry, price is below its true valuation. Right. Um, all right. So uh, on the um, on the uh, uh, you know concentration of the market in these these top stocks right now, these top tech stocks. Um, one of the challenges of this is if if, if you play this out right is um, the market value has been increasingly concentrated in the FANG stocks as really the past decade has gone on, right? And that's like super driving things this year, right? Um, I, I, I think, and I'd love to have you respond to this, but I think one of the real risks here is when markets get distorted and you know they've been distorted by, you know, tons of cheap liquidity that's been sloshing around the world because of central planner policy and stuff like that. They're now kind of distorted still um, because of the, the passive investing uh, algos that are out there that, as you said earlier, cram 32 cents of every dollar that goes into the market of these top 10 stocks, right? right? So, you know, eventually the market you know, I mean, investors are like any animal, right? You know, they're 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 going to move to where they're treated better, and if they're whipped, you know, they'll they'll move away from the places they're whipped. So they kind of get corralled more and more into these few top ten stocks, right? Which, for a while, 
continues to rise everything up as more and more money says, okay, I guess this is the only pocket of the market where I can get a return, right? But but you get the risks, what I kind of call like the towering inferno risk, right? Where you get the risk where everybody's packed in and then something happens. Either valuations have just gotten way too divorced from reality or just the, the business opportunity prospects of that sector, you know, all of a sudden start to not look as good. And everybody's trapped there. <laughs> and, you know, then the market corrects. And because all the value is crammed into that part of the market, you get really big market drawdowns that happen really quickly. A, how worried are you about that in the longer run here? And B, kind of how do you play that as a capital manager, right? You, to your point, you got to kind of play the markets as they are, but you don't necessarily want to just blindly follow that, right? Right. Well, let me uh, share, share my screen here real quick. I'll show you to, to your point. Um, and again, a little bit of this is is just you know kind of the reality of where we are. But um, this is this is a chart of the technology index versus the S and P five hundred index. And right now, you've got this you know kind of this this massive you know deviation between the technology sector and and the rest of the market. And again, this is. Previously, it's been unsustainable. It's probably unsustainable this time. So if there's there's going to be a correction at some point in technology now, I don't expect the dot-com type crash. There is a diff, there, there's a very important difference. And, I, and, I, and, and so when you look at this chart, I don't want you to look back at that dot-com bus and say, oh, well, that's what's about to happen to the tech sector. That's not the case. And, and Adam, you can attest to this because you lived through it with me back then. The vast majority of those companies back in 2000 made no money. They did not generate revenue. They had no viable business plan. They were just simply sticking .com onto their name and, and throwing up a website, hoping it was going to work. And so a lot of those companies went out of business entirely. The difference today is the stocks that are driving this rally, they are real companies. They are big companies, and they generate real revenue and a lot of it, um, you know, uh, uh, NVIDIA is going to generate $33 billion annualized in the next quarter. So, I mean, that is that is real money. And so these companies are not going bankrupt. But again, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have a correction. It just, but I wouldn't expect to have a dot-com crash. So to your point, Adam, you know, there's going to be a realization that earnings growth and revenue growth in the markets can't keep up with the pace of what prices are doing. And, and this was something that, you know, we uh, talked about just recently. You know, if you take a look at, at analyst estimates right now, the estimates in Q4, we, well, we earned $172 a share. This is gap reported, by the way, not operating BS. So on a gap reported basis, we reported $172 in Q4, $171. So earnings actually troughed in the fourth quarter of last year. And there's some reasons for that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But estimates right now are taking us back to a level even higher than we were at the beginning of January 2022, which was the peak, all-time peak in earnings growth in January 2022. So analysts are right now very optimistic about where earnings are going to grow, not just for technology, but for all stocks in the index itself. And there's certainly a lot of concern with those estimates. Again, the deviation from the long-term growth trend of earnings is exceedingly elevated above what the economy can actually generate. And, and so, you know, despite AI and despite all this other stuff that's going on, revenue comes from what people spend. And so if, if people aren't spending as much money, 
revenue growth isn't going to be as much. So, you know, so a risk to NVIDIA's example, they're saying, okay, everybody's going to go AI. Okay, that's fine. Everybody's got to spend money on getting to AI, right? So we've got to buy all the, the GPUs, we've got to buy the networking, we've got to buy everything involved to get AI related, right? And, and, and to be ready to go. But if my business isn't getting dollars in the door from consumers, my spend on going AI isn't going to be as great because my business isn't growing as fast as what everybody's expecting. And so that's the risk to these kind of really accelerated earnings expectations is that the, the, the market really and the economy can't keep up with the expectations of that going forward. And again, and so to your point, so this is from Simplevisor, this is the relative versus absolute. So we look at absolute performance relative to the S&P and relative performance to the S&P. And you can just see that in this upper right-hand quadrant, you can just see XLK, XLC, XLY. That's all your AI stocks. That's Amazon, Meta, and basically NVIDIA, Google, those guys. And everything else is, is shoved in, the, in basically the oversold category. And again, that's just that rotation doesn't last for very long. And you very rarely see it this skewed and this deviated to where you have just this big spread between what's performing and what's not performing. So again, this, you know, I don't know what causes the, this rotation ultimately. My expectation is, is that slower economic growth, which is going to happen, we're going to have slower economic growth. And I'll tell you why, you know, there's a, there's a reason we may have a soft landing this time uh, versus the deep recession draw everybody's expecting. But I still think you're going to have some type of significant enough slowdown that earnings expectations have to come down somewhat. Yeah, okay. And, and obviously back to your point about NVIDIA being priced for, you know, decades and decades of capturing all of the revenue of, of its <laughs> industry, right? Is, uh, yeah, everyone's all of a sudden saying, wow, we got to, you know, we got to invest for AI, right? We got to, we got to mm -hmm. buy servers and processors and, you know, put our data centers in place and all that stuff, right? Um, but, the, but uh, and also too, the thing that people have to remember is, is that that is also going to spur demand for new businesses, so again, NVIDIA has the lock on the GPU market right now. Hands down, they make the best GPUs, period. There's nobody even close. But that doesn't mean that a new company, there, there's a lot of other companies out there. There's AMD, there's a variety of others um, that are going to get into that space. when they Because when companies see that opportunity, they're going to go, I can build a GPU and they're going to go try to right. build a yeah, GPU. No, it's, it's just like we talked about the, the comparison with cloud yeah, you know, the cloud, yeah. right? Where you know, all of a sudden, everybody got in the cloud because there was a ton of profit there. And my right. my, my point w was that everyone's making that land grab right now. Where right, I need to get this stuff because I need to compete. And yes, Nvidia, what can I buy from you this quarter? And I'm throwing money at you. But eventually, they have the infrastructure they need, right? And exactly. so you know, that that buying wave, you know, ebbs, right? And so to your point about right now, they've just got to keep delivering those same breakout results quarter after quarter after quarter for decades. To, like it's just not realistic. Yeah. But hey, competition is going to be a problem. Pricing is going to be a problem, just like with cloud. You know, the, the profit margins are going to have to come down um, as the market becomes more saturated. And that's just the function of how things work. So, but again, it doesn't mean you can't make a crap load of money on NVIDIA over the next couple of years. That's certainly very possible. Again, just don't forget to sell at some point. Right. And I think we talked about this last week, but you just got to be real careful not to be Isaac Newton, right? Where 
made a bunch of money in the South Sea bubble, got out, felt like a genius. But then his friend stayed in, made a lot more. And he was like, geez, they're getting rich. I got to jump back I'm, in. And of course, wrong time. I'm, I'm having my Isaac Newton moment as we speak. You know, we owned NVIDIA last year and we sold it when we were up over 100%. And of course, I'm kicking myself now for selling it. And now I'm trying to figure out how to get back into it. So yeah, I'm in that Isaac Newton trap right now. Right. But remember, as we said, that nobody went broke making a profit. You know, just congratulate <laughs> yeah, yourself on getting a green return on that. Yeah, and, that, you know. that. That's all fine and dandy until your client reminds you that you sold it. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, look, uh, real quick on energy. Um, uh, when you showed the chart, you just showed one recently. I'm not sure which chart was was more up to date, but um, the energy sector is the most oversold right now. And if I'm remembering correctly, the chart that you showed earlier uh, it was in like the the dark green. Uh, yeah. Is that the most recent one? Because you you showed yeah, one so, earlier. No, they're, they're, yeah, no, they're they're both recent. This is a little bit this is a little bit different analysis. So the other the other chart I showed you was relative. So uh, again, how is energy trading relative to the S and P five hundred? Yep. So it's very oversold. On an so we analyze everything on two basis. absolute. What is it on its by itself? So of itself is energy overbought or oversold relative to itself. So that's absolute. Relative is how is it doing to the S and P as a whole. So the first chart I showed you is that energy, as compared to the S and P, is extremely oversold. But even on an absolute basis, energy is extremely oversold from a historical perspective. So both on an both on an absolute and a relative basis, energy utilities and real estate are the most oversold components of the market. Okay, so if I'm remembering the relative one, energy was in the dark green, just like okay. the uh, the communications and technology are in the dark red right now. Right. Um, you don't have to go back and get it. I, I can describe this, but but basically it, on a relative basis, it was it was in the the high at the highest extreme of relative oversoldness. In the absolute one, it's in the middle green, which is still right. pretty oversold. So you you said, hey, yeah, we're we're looking at this industry. We're starting to kind of nibble in here because we think it's been left for dead and it's going to swing back into favor at some point. Um, that all makes sense to me. My question is, is what are the what indicator like what, what's going to tell you when it's time to really start going hard into it? Um, when you start seeing it move from being relative and absolute oversold back to not as oversold, so you're seeing that rotation back from underperformance to outperformance. So as it begins, so again, so if you go back to the kind of the quadrant basis that I was showing you, you know, in the upper right right quadrant, that's where everything is overbought, right? That's where things that they're in, they're in the biggest momentum part of the move right now. They're extremely extended and overbought. In the bottom left quadrant, that is the most oversold. So as you think about how stocks operate, they move in a counterclockwise cycle. They go from leading to lagging, uh, sorry, leading to weakening to lagging, to improving. So as they move through that cycle, we went from energy was leading last year, then it went to weakening and we saw technology turning up. We Now energy has gone from weakening to lagging the market. And when it begins to move into the improving where it's now improving relative to the overall market and it's improving on an absolute basis. And the, and the difference between the green colors, the really dark green on the relative basis, it's extremely oversold. But that was where we were buying some energy for the portfolio, and energy has improved a bit since then. So that's why the green on the absolute basis isn't as dark green. It's because it's been improving here recently. Um, 
But as it moves, it moves into improving where it becomes kind of in that middle section, that's where you really, that's where you know you've now got the trend, the kind of the wind behind you, and you can more aggressively add to those positions. Okay, great. So, so just to repeat, um, I'm guessing you're, you've got some sort of dollar cost average, like we're just going to keep nibbling in yep. while it remains this oversold. And then when it starts to make the move, that's where we're going to say, okay, we're going to think about like putting in some big buys now because it looks like the wind shifted. It's now at our backs. Right. So, so that's why we always talk about, you know, position sizing, you know, our max position weighting in any position is 5%. Our minimum is one. So when we go buy a, a new position, and so let, let's just use NVIDIA's example. How can I buy NVIDIA with some type of, of structure behind it, right? So, so, you know, even if things go terribly wrong, you know, and, and then we actually had this conversation, uh, Mike and I did the day on Wednesday before NVIDIA uh, announced earnings. And we said, look, we could buy a position in NVIDIA. The risk is that, they could be up twenty percent or down twenty percent the next day because if they if they missed earnings, right, um, or they disappoint and said, "Hey, the market's not growing as fast as we want." There's a lot of risk there. It would have, it would have, it just as big, just in the other direction, exactly. Yeah. Correct. And so, if you buy it the day before earnings, you have that you have that that binary risk up or down twenty. So one of the strategies was is that we could buy one percent going into the earnings announcement. If we're down twenty, we buy another percent. If we're up twenty, we don't do anything. Right. So that would have worked, except and but we, we opted not to do that for a couple of other reasons. So, so you know, different story. But let's say today now the stock's extremely overbought. How do you get into it? Well, the stock could simply just trade here sideways for a while and go nowhere and then accelerate higher again. So you buy one percent. If the stock declines uh, to a reasonable stop loss level, and doesn't violate it, you buy another 1%. When it turns back up, you buy another 1%. And you keep working your way into it over time as it goes up. But always maintain that stop because uh, at some point you're going to violate that stop and the trade's going to be over. And the the where where risk happens is people go, okay, well, I violated my stop, but I'm going to hold on to it because it might go back up and then it keeps going lower and lower and yep. lower. And, lower and, and then you're in the trap and you can't get out of it. So you can work your way into a position Technically, as long as you just have a really good discipline about obeying those stops, we have others. We have AMD, which is you know performing. So I'm just going to wait on Nvidia. I'll get the entry opportunity I want at some point to buy Nvidia, and so we'll add it back to the portfolio at that point. We've also got a list of ten other AI stocks. We'll be uh, we're both we talked about before. We're we're building an AI centric portfolio as a sleeve for our models. Um, but then we're also going to add some of these stocks to the, the portfolio itself. But we've just got to wait for the, you know, the right entry opportunity. And that'll happen. It might be later this year. Um, you know, this is part of the issue of trading. You know, you might wind up, you know, buying a stock at, let's say, you know, NVIDIA, right? We might wind up paying 385 for NVIDIA after it went to 450 and came back to 385. So, you know, it, but at that point, even though 385 today is extremely overbought and extremely expensive, 385 six months from now may not be because it went up and then corrected a bunch of that overvaluation. But you're back at the same level and that can happen. And that's where you've got to be willing to step in when you get the right variable setup. You've got to be willing to step in and take the risk and then just continue to maintain those, maintain those stop losses. All right. All right. Great. I, I love how you give the audience, you know, just a transparent view into the mind of a portfolio manager and how, how, how folks do this. All right. Well, look, um, 
If we'll I really did, I'd scare the crap out of you. But <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, and folks, you know, every week we'll be tracking Lance's thoughts on you know these overbought, oversold uh, sectors of the market, and and you know we'll we'll see if AI continues to do what it's doing, and we'll see if energy ever picks itself up off the floor here and finally catches a bid. Yeah. If it happens, you'll hear about it here. Um, all right, well, I got to move on to um, a couple other things. <clears throat> um, you mentioned this really briefly earlier on, but this is kind of become like sort of a, it's all of a sudden becoming sort of a, a prevalent theme, which is that um, we have been in disinflation, as you and I predicted, you know, over a year ago. Um, but the the sledding ahead from here is looking like it's going to be rougher going in terms of, of getting CPI down, you know, from here around 5%, 4.9 to two or less, which is what the Fed has said its, it's mandate and goal is. Um, what we're finding, though, is that uh, it's, it's like I said, it's likely to be stickier uh, than than certainly the Fed would like, and that I think maybe the markets have been expecting uh, recently. Uh, and a big issue with that is services. Right? You talked about the, the the services sector of the economy is kind of hanging yeah. in there, but uh, when you look at um, uh, the Fed's preferred inflation uh, measure, which is core CPE, uh, that actually rose recently. So the latest data actually rose. It's not, it's being stubborn. It's not coming down. If you look at uh, core CPE services X shelter, which removes the housing component from services that hasn't gone anywhere since it, <laughs> it, it, it spiked up at the end of 2021. And it's just hung out there since like, that's not coming down at all, despite 500 basis points, you know, or more of Fed tightening in the interim. So nothing the Fed has done uh, has moved that number yet. Now we we expect the 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 shelter component of uh, CPI to start coming down because it's a bit of a lagging input in there. Um, but the other parts of services are, are I mean, they're just totally ignoring what the Fed's doing right yeah. now. So I had an interview earlier this week with Wolf Richter that went really deep into why he thinks you know this inflation is going to continue to be super sticky. So folks, if you're looking for a really detailed discussion on that, go watch that video with uh, with with Wolf. Um, but Lance, how, how big of an issue do you think this is going to be? Well, it puts the to a bit of a quandary because, and again, you're starting you're starting to see rate hike odds for the next meeting go up. Uh, you know, now starting to give a give at least a nod towards a five and a quarter percent rate. Uh, uh, you know, Fed funds rate, which would be another quarter basis point hike, certainly not in the cards for the market. That's not what the market's expecting at all. Right. And, and sorry to interrupt, but, but, but Bullard yeah. from the Fed said he he thinks the Fed should hike two more times from here. So yeah. he's, he's even talking a more aggressive game. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, uh, you know, this is kind of this weekend's newsletter on the website. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com and, and click the subscription button, I'll email you the newsletter on Saturday. But I just shared with you a few kind of because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having the same conundrum as everybody else. Right. Trying to figure this out. Um, but just just real quick, you know, if you take a look at GDP on an annual real rate, um, you know, it is declining. And, and there's a very important thing that we need to understand. I'm going to go a little bit more detail on this in a second. Um, but GDP is clearly declining. And this, you know, we've been all expecting this deep recession and those type of things. And one of the things to consider, and this is to your point about the services sector, if you go back to 2011, we actually had a manufacturing recession. And that was when, you know, Japan was, had, a, had an, an offshore, uh, offshore earthquake that led to a tsunami 
that flooded the country that created a nuclear meltdown. The only thing that didn't happen at that point was Godzilla didn't rise back up you know, <laughs> and devastate the rest of the country. But it was bad. I mean, and, and, and we, we I, do I heard they saw Mothra. I heard Mothra was there. <laughs> I'm sure it was. But we import a lot of stuff from Japan. Um, think about all the auto parts, the car parts, the actual autos, everything that we import from Japan. So it impacted our manufacturing sector. And this was all going on exactly at the same time where I'm the big, the big debt ceiling default debate, right? Um, but we had this big kind of economic drag. Well, by the end of the year, we resolved the debt ceiling issue. Um, and Japan came back online and the economy started growing again. Of course, you know, we were right in the middle of Operation Twist um, with Ben Bernanke at that point. And then in late 2013, we started QE3 on concerns of a fiscal cliff, which was the result of that debt ceiling debate. So, uh, but interest rates were zero. So there are some differences between now and then. Fed funds rates were zero, not 5%. We were doing Operation Twist, not QT. So certainly some differences between today and what we had back in 2011. But you know, the, the point is, is this. If you look at the economy right now, and had we had the decline in economic growth from a normalized GDP, so if, if GDP over the last 12 years has been running, actually since 2000 to be exact, has been running right around 2.2, 2.3%. We've had a 12% decline roughly in GDP. So if we if we were at 2% and experienced a 12% decline in GDP, we'd be a negative 10, right? That would be on par with what we saw in the economic shutdown during the pandemic. It would also be much greater than we saw in the financial crisis, which was only a 4% net draw of the economy, but it was down 6% basically from the 2% growth rate. You know, And so going back to 2000, we barely even got negative and had a recession. So the point is, is if you look at where the economy has slowed from, right? We're all expecting this big this big negative number to show up, but we've already had a fairly significant drawdown in the economy. And so we're seeing that impact of those rate hikes. We just haven't seen it yet fully kind of fledged through. And one of the reasons for that is what, you know, I've, I've built this monetary conditions index. And this monetary conditions index, it takes into account inflation, short, long rates in the U.S. dollar. And the reason is, is obviously inflation, it impacts spending and what goes on in the economy. Short, long rates impact everything from capital expenditures to consumer spending. Uh, you know, short rates are basically variable credit card rates, those type of things. Long rates impact CapEx expenditures for businesses. The U.S. dollar obviously has a big impact. Strength or weakness of the dollar has a big impact on exports, which make up 40% of, of, you know, kind of corporate profits. Uh, ultimately, it has a big impact on the GDP number. So when you combine those together and create an index, it gives you a pretty good indication of what's happening within the economy overall. And you know, if, if we take that and look at, and, and if I invert that index and compare it to GDP, we can see that that monetary conditions index is improving to the point that is supportive of stronger economic growth. There's a bit of a lag to the index because it takes time for all this to filter through, but that improvement in that monetary conditions index suggests that we're gonna have some stronger, well, it's supporting the stronger GDP numbers that we've been getting this year. Um, again, the, and, and again, that 
that improvement in the monetary conditions index is supportive of the S&P 500 rally. Um, whenever that index declines, that's been good for stocks historically. Um, flip that, and, and again, a lot of this, I'm flipping this from inverted to inverted to show correlations. Um, but the monetary conditions index has a very high correlation to the rate of change in annualized earnings for the S&P. So the bottom in earnings that we saw in the fourth quarter of GDP aligns very clearly with the bottom of the monetary conditions index. Um, and, and so and we see that um, you know, with the market itself. So uh, again, you have this, you know, this kind of indication that the monetary conditions are becoming more supportive of the economy overall. And the important fact here is, and again, you know, we, we really talk a lot about fan, man, uh, Fed, uh, about manufacturing. Um, you know, we talk about the Fed manufacturing indexes. Oh, look how bad those are. Look at the, look at these other in, you know, manufacturing indexes. Look at what's going on. It's terrible. We're going to be in a recession. But the economy is about 77% services, only 22% manufacturing. That's inverted, by the way, from where it was back in the 1970s when we were nearly 80% manufacturing, 20% services. So uh, there's a big difference. And, and this all kind of culminates into this one chart, which is services have actually been improving over the last couple of quarters. Manufacturing is still under a lot of pressure here. And if we go back to 2011, 2012, go back to 2015, 2016, yes, we had a manufacturing recession, but services never got into recessionary territory. When services are recessionary, that's when you have an economic recession, dot-com crash, financial crisis, et cetera. Got it. Um, so, you know, services are you know, kind of carrying us, carrying the economy through and, and no surprise, yeah. as you said, they're, they're three quarters of the economy at this point. Um, uh, that said, that's where we're seeing inflation be the stickiest. Um, so, uh, you know, the, 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 by far the biggest chunk of the economy is getting more expensive, you know, for its customers, which, which can't be great. Right. Um, but you're explaining why we haven't fallen into recession yet, at least, because Services right. have to get dragged down. Um, real quick, uh, do me a favor. Just, uh, I want to, I want to make sure that the folks uh, who saw your charts there followed it the way I was trying to. The 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 monetary index that you created, right? Yep. Um, I know it was inverted in some of these different charts, but yep. basically because it's made up of inflation, long and short rates, and the strength of the dollar, when it goes up, that's generally depressive of economic activity and stocks go down, right? Because everything is getting more expensive, right? Inflation's raging, cost of capital is going higher, you know, right. dollar gets stronger, uh, right. you know. And, and which is what you saw last year. So <laughs> last year, we that index was very strong and rising, and we were having a lot of depressive activity in, in the markets and the economy. Now that's reversing. Right. And it's reversing, not, it, well, certain long rates are still powering higher right now, right. but um, inflation's been coming down and the dollar's been weakening this year. So net, net, that thing's coming down. Correct. Okay, great. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Um, okay, so um, uh, we're beginning to get in the back half here. Um, so I want to I want to tick off a couple of quick things before we if we have any time. I've got one or two other questions for you that are should be more fun to discuss. Um, I do just want to put up um, a chart here. Uh, I'm I'm going to skip our general sort of wade through you know all, all the recessionary risks that are out there. Um, the, a lot of them are still there. Although, as Lance says, you know, there are some things and services is, is still on an uptrend here. Um, 
But uh, the consumer balance sheet still looks like it's headed in the wrong direction here. Latest data shows that the savings rate has dipped again. It's down near you know historic lows. Um, and uh, revolving consumer credit, uh, the total revolving consumer credit out there is still in its moonshot, right? So we still seem to be maybe not so much changing our uh, purchasing behavior yet as a society, but I think we are continuing to shove more and more of it onto to revolving debt at this point in time, which Lance, you and I have talked about, uh, that that has a, an end date at some point. You, know, you can't do that forever. You begin to hit debt saturation. Um, uh, who knows if we will, but it's still not headed in the right direction. So just want to make sure we're keeping our eye on that. Um, oh, yeah. Then just, just, real, yeah. just real quick. I don't want anybody to walk away from the conversation. They're going, oh, Lance is just so bullish about everything. And, and I'm not saying that at all. You know, what I'm trying to get across is, is that as when as investing goes, right, we have to analyze the data and, and really understand what's going on. There's certainly risk you know, to the economy, to the markets there. And I'm not denying that at all. And this is this is the big challenge that we go through every week. And if you if you go to our website and uh, realinvestmentadvice.com and just read our blog post, there's like bullish, bearish, bullish, bearish, you know, because we're we're just as confused as everybody else about, you know, why historically when you have all these interest rate hikes and all this stuff going on, you've always had a recession. Why is it happening this time? And so and part of that reason is, is that we had such a big inflation in GDP because of all the monetary liquidity that is taking much longer to ring that out. And it certainly doesn't mean that we can't get into recessionary territory. It just may be 2024 before we get there. So don't, I just don't want anybody to leave here thinking that I'm like uber bullish and 100% long stocks because we're not. You I'm glad you're giving that clarity. Um, I, I hope we haven't painted you as the Uber bull here, um, but you do do a good job of making sure that we don't get uh, uh, trapped in, in too much Uber bearishness either. Right. Um, I think one of the things you're you're, you're doing and, and just did with that you know key analysis you just walked us through is to say, look, um, yeah, there's a chance that the show may end here, right? And we all got to get super defensive. Um, but we know kind of how the show goes and it's not over till the fat lady sings and we're just not seeing her on stage yet. Right. She's, she's um, a bit anorexic right now. So, okay. <laughs> but basically you're just saying, look, there are certain indicators that, you know, we expect to see when we're in the murder, my metaphors here, we're in the last innings here and, you know, we're, we're, we're maybe we haven't seen the seventh inning stretch yet. So don't, don't leave the ball game yet, folks. Yeah, that's right. Um, and by the way, you need to be politically correct. It's the, when the full-figured woman sings. I knew somebody. I I knew. Yeah, whatever. Um, just wanted. Just wanted to get. I just wanted to get it in before you got caught on. I got caught. Yeah, and feel free to hit me, folks. But we're 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 you know we're gentlemen of a certain age, right? You know, we we use a lot of the vernacular, of the Gen X uh, generation we grew up in. Not not meant to offend anybody. <laughs> um, all right. So. Um, I, there was a, I think, an important article that you wrote this week, which I just want to touch on really briefly, because I know we've been touching about uh, touching on bonds for a long time here. You wrote a, a report just very recently saying time for Treasury bonds may have come. Yep. Um, so I know that we've had, we've been asking you every week, like, hey, Lance, when's it really going to be time to start going further out the duration curve, and when do you think uh, you know it's, it's You've been nibbling in over time, but when are you going to get real serious about it? Sounds like you might be getting serious. Uh, yeah, not yet. Um, we need to get, and, and, and I know that's right. That's confusing. Um, 
<laughs> the, the only reason, the only reason right now that I'm not buying them today is just this whole debt ceiling deal. Um, we've got to get the debt ceiling done. Uh, when the debt ceiling done is is completed, they're going to have to issue a good bit of debt, which could cause a very momentary spike in rates. And now, when we're talking about, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Right. So, when we're talking about a spike in rates, by the way, we're not talking about interest rates going to five and a half percent of the ten-year treasury. We're talking about maybe going from three eight to three nine uh, type thing. So, we could see a bit of an uptick. Bonds are getting very oversold here because of concerns over the debt ceiling, and you know. That's going to that's providing us a much better entry point. But it, like I said, as soon as this debt ceiling deal gets done, the Treasury is going to, have to issue some debt. We see a very little bit of an uptick in, in Treasury bonds, but we'll be buying that uptick. All right, great. And that was my question was going to be is you're going to use that as as the opportunity to buy into almost in some ways you could say a little gift. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get those opportunities very often. And again, if you you know, just go back and look. And again, you know, it's like, oh, Ansa, I don't agree with you. Okay, fine. Don't agree with me. It's it's completely okay. Go back and look at 2011 when we went through the whole debt ceiling debate. Take a look at a chart of the S and P and ten-year Treasuries back then. Yields were falling during the entire downgrade of the debt. And yes, it was a little bit of an uptick, very small. Uh, that was your buying opportunity before yields went plunging through the end of the year. So. You know, uh, it's just a function that at the end of the day, yields are a function of inflation and economic growth and wages, and those are declining. Okay. Um, so just to help folks sort of, again, scope the opportunity here, um, there's an inverse relationship between um, bond yields and uh, prices, or, or the coupon on the bond and prices. Um, and uh, if if yields go up, prices come down. As Lance is saying, that's your opportunity to buy in at lower prices. But what Lance is expecting is that um, there could be, you know, bond yields have gone up uh, a fair amount in the past year or so. Um, Lance is expecting that they could come down and, and maybe even possibly pretty materially over the rest of the year, or early next year especially too, if something breaks in the system and the Fed has to reverse policy and, and do a true pivot and, and come back in. So there's sort of two things to look out for at this point in time. If you think that's going to happen, you can try to play that appreciation in bond prices. And you know there are ways to do that through ETFs. We've talked about TLT on this program a lot, right? Um, but also, as your partner, Mike Leibowitz has said, you know he believes that the peak is in for yields are very close to, we've probably seen the peak, you know, maybe we're going to go get a little bump here when they have to refill the TGA. But he's basically saying we may not see yields as good as they've been recently for the rest of our lifetimes. And so he's like, you just might want to buy a long dated treasury bond yeah. and just get a nice safe yield for 10, 20 years, right? No, it's 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 very much the case. And, and again, this is one of the things, you know, let me, uh, I'm doing a lot of sharing today. I apologize. Um, but sharing is caring, Lance. I know. Well, so, um, but so this is the article, it's on our website right now. But you know, to your point, you know, uh, there's two kind of two graphs I want to show you. So, the, to your point, uh, this is what you're talking about. So, this is just a graphic of what Adam was saying. You know, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down. When, bond, when interest rates go down, bond prices go up. There's just this inverse relationship between those two. Um, but the important part is, is that you know, when you look at the long term picture and dynamics of what's happening, you know, with yields and what's going on. So again, if you're expecting, you know, if, if you're, if you're bent towards this idea 
that we're going to have a big economic drawdown. Just, you know, I, I, I see, you know, it's the end of the world's coming, et cetera. Then you want to buy long dated treasuries because those are going to be the big, biggest beneficiaries of the end of the world type scenario. And the reason is, is that if we go back and look at the long term, and this, this chart goes all the way back to, um, hang on, I got to move your picture over here, Adam. I'm looking at your picture. That's um, right. We see it fine. <laughs> yeah. So, but, you know, so this is the long term. This goes back to, to basically 1854. Excuse me. Um, I don't know why Microsoft added this feature in. I hate it. Um, so this goes back to 1854. And if you look at through every cycle of economic growth, inflation, um, short term rates, long term rates, you know, that, you know, the 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 ultimate drive of yields is a function of the trend of economic growth and wages and inflation. And so you have pre-World War era and post-World War era. So since post-World War II, you know, the weaker economic growth gets, the weaker that we're going to, or, the, or the, the lower that we're going to see yields, because as a function of economic growth, interest rates are very much driven by economic activity, because again, the bond market is driven, and this is the, the you know, the, the key factors right here, is that the way the bond market works is that as a bond trader, I don't care about the AI theme, right? So I'm not buying NVIDIA stock, I'm buying NVIDIA bonds as an example. So if I look at the NVIDIA bond, what am I looking at? Well, I'm looking at what's their default risk? What's interest rate risk relative to their ability to pay bills? What's the inflation risk? How's that gonna impact their balance sheet, their income statement, those type of things? What's the opportunity risk that you know, if I buy a, a, an NVIDIA bond at 1% interest, what's my opportunity risk of not buying a 10-year treasury at 5%? I'm just throwing out numbers. Economic growth risk. If economic growth falls, that means yields are going to come down, bond prices go up. If economic growth is expected to get stronger, that's not going to be good for bond prices. So the, the point is, is that bonds are priced specifically on very important risks that are tangible, they are, they are calculable, they are understandable. It's not any, it, there's nothing in the bond world that's based on, I think that, that NVIDIA can grow to 100% of the GPU market. That's never a consideration. So when you think about bonds, you just have to get down to the granularity of where do you expect economic growth and inflation to be over the next 10 years, 20 years, because of the debt, because of what we're doing with consumer credit what we're doing with our productive versus non-productive investments in the economy. All those type of factors doesn't suggest that we're going back to 8% growth rates in the economy anytime soon. And if that doesn't happen, then 10-year treasury rates at 45 or at 5% or whatever that number turns out to be being the peak, that's going to be the best number you're, you're going to see over the next decade. And you know, like people did 30 years ago that were buying 12% treasuries, they set on 12% returns out of treasury debt for 30 years before those bonds matured. So you know, that's, and this is the, the important part about understanding bonds. And, and again, this is really the premise of the article is that um, people don't understand how bonds work, right? The, the, we don't talk about bonds in the media. We don't talk about bonds in the markets. We don't do any of that. We talk about stocks all day long. But what this article kind of delves into a bit is just helping you understand how bonds work, why bonds work the way they do, and why now is probably a good opportunity to buy them. All right, great. And for folks that want even more, you know, meat on what we just talked about, go to Lance's website, read the full report. Um, but, uh, you know, most importantly, Lance, um, 
you know, we'll keep checking in with you as we uh, we do these weekly uh, uh, you know videos here. But you know, we may be coming close to the point where you know you guys are going to say, "Yeah, guys, this is sort of the moment." If you <laughs> if you believe in this trade, it's time to move on it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look. Um, wrapping up here, we'll get to your your trades in just a moment. Um, uh, there was a, this was the thing I've wanted to, to engage with you on here, because uh, I'm sure you're going to have opinions on it. So uh, I put out a, a tweet on Twitter the other day, um, and Gen X, as uh, just mentioned a few minutes ago, and um, technically in what's called the sandwich generation, right, where we're, you know, paying for our elderly care parents, uh, you know, twilight year care. And we're also putting kids through school, college, you know, early life issues, uh, early life, uh, you know, expenses and stuff like that. Uh, so you feel really squeezed. And I, I got to say, you know, coming out of the pandemic with the explosion and the cost of living and everything, um, and and even before that, you know, two of the biggest expenses that were outpacing inflation, um, general inflation by an awful lot, you know, were education costs and healthcare costs, yeah. right? So. Um, I think that that sandwich generation, the the squeeze, the the amplitude of the force that's squeezing them has really ramped up in the past couple of years. And you know, I'm dealing with some issues with a, an aging parent, and of course, I've got one kid almost done with college, one kid about to go in, and uh, you know, I'm 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 doing okay, making it through, but like I'm just sweating myself, but also just looking around and saying, how do the millions of other people that are dealing with this, you know, how do they? How are they dealing with this? I mean, some of these expenses are pretty damn, you know, uh, they, they bite and you don't know how long they're going to be. They could go on for a lot longer than you think. And the costs increases annually have been just mind boggling. Um, I know that, you know, your your firm is all about financial planning and, you know, helping people fund their life goals and whatnot. Um, I'm sure a ton of your clients are in the sandwich generation right now. You know, what 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 type of advice or counsel do you have for people that are going through that right now? Because that that tweet that I put out there generated a, a massive. I mean, it definitely hit a nerve. It, it, it really resonated with a lot of folks that are that are feeling that squeeze. And you know, a lot of folks are saying, "Look, you just do what you can." But man, I don't know. I'm going to keep my head above water here. Well, you know, part of it is that unfortunately we give a lot of people advice that they don't want to hear, um, which is. Well, you can't pay for your kids to go to college. You can't. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. You know, you can't do these things that you want to do or that you think you're going to want to do because you just simply can't afford it. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of our clients. They, you know, obviously, if if you're if you're hiring a money manager, you're you're doing much better than most. Um, you know, you know, most of our clients, are, and, and and when I say this, you're going to go, that's that's crazy, right? But most of our clients are in the top two to three percent of wealth savers in the country. By the way, if you have more than about a hundred thousand dollars in the bank, you're in the top three to five percent of the of the entire That's country. Say, so yeah. It doesn't take a lot when you consider eighty to ninety percent of people don't have five hundred dollars in the bank, but. That's and, and so, you know, it's very easy to get separated when you know we're on this channel talking about investing and buying stocks. Ninety percent of the population is not on the wealthy on channel trying to figure out how to trade stocks and buy stocks and, and manage money. They're just trying to figure out how to pay bills. So this is a very big problem globally. Um, and it's something we've talked about for years. And this is why you've got to, you know, think about your situation. And unfortunately, we talked about this before on the show. You may want to pay for your kids' college, 
that's a great admirable thing. I don't have any problem with it if you can afford it, but being able to afford it is, is, is a big question. And the real, the question you've got to ask yourself is before you step out there and put yourself in a problem paying for your kids, you know, college, do you want to be a burden on them when you get into retirement? And now they're in the sandwich generation of having to take care of you and their kids. So, you know, you have to make those choices, not necessarily, maybe not something they're, they're keen on right now. It's like, I can't believe my dad's not helping me pay for college, but they'll, they'll thank you for it later when you're not living with them. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe can we just say that that sort of is a, a, a rule of, of wealth building, which is the, you have to prioritize your retirement over your children's uh, higher education experience, expenses or, or, or you know, early, early adult life getting started expenses um, because uh, they've got all their earning potential ahead of them. And if it comes down between the two, much better to not have to be a burden on them later on in life versus, you know, stealing from your retirement to help them early on, but then making a lot of asks of them later on in life. You're not. No, absolutely. And and look, it's like I said, you know, we we have these conversations on a regular basis. They're tough conversations. It's people stuff that people don't want to hear. And sorry about that. And we've, we've raised an entire generation of people that think it's their, you know, their, it's their responsibility to pay for kids schools and, pay for kids' cars and pay for kids' phones and all those type of things. Um, and again, you know, I go back to my, my baby boomer Gen X roots and that was, that was never a consideration, you know, with my parents. And, and, you know, so we've got to start thinking a little bit more rationally. And, and again, we have a big financial education problem in this country. We've got a big financial problem in this country. Uh, and, and it's not because of, well, I don't get paid enough at my job. It's because you live beyond your means. And we've got to start accepting responsibility for our situation. Then we can start fixing it. Yeah, and you know, Lance. I mean, it's 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 interesting. There's there's you know on the on the parenting side, there's sort of this collision of the era of helicopter parenting that we came into, where we just do a lot more for our kids and probably too much, as we've talked about a lot in past uh, past videos. Um, but also, you know, there there there's. I mean, one just the parental desire to help, but but also like younger generations. I mean, they they, they do have a tougher road to hoe than than we did in the sense of affordability yeah. right i mean things are so crazy affordable right or unaffordable right now um you know i've got a daughter like i said who's, who's just graduating now and it's really hitting her like a ton of bricks of just how freaking expensive the world is and i and, I, and i'm sympathetic because you know I, i'm still giving her the same speech of like hey look you know <laughs> here's all the ways that i had to totally you know sacrifice and my meager starts and, you know, living in the rat infested apartment, you know, in Manhattan with 20 other people and all that type of stuff. Um, but just the absolute, you know, the, the uh, or, or the, the relative unaffordability is even worse today. So I, I am, I am quite sympathetic to that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do agree that, that when you have to make that trade-off, securing your retirement is a priority over over them getting started in life. Give them all the emotional support, all the mentoring, and all that stuff that you can. But you know, if you've got to, you've got to pinch dollars, pinch it towards your retirement, not not their yeah. launching stuff. It's a little bit harder with parents, right? Um, because you know nobody nobody likes to turn to a parent and say, "Sorry, bud," you know, uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> whatever right I, i'm i'm trying not to sound too cruel um 
And, you know, I think maybe we've talked about this a little bit, Lance. Um, I know that that your financial um, planners there, uh, Danny and Robert? Richard. Richard. Danny and Richard, um, you know, they, they're they experts on so many topics, but, but sort of um, senior care, like ways to, to help plan for I mean, we should all be doing our own estate planning, but 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 the help, you know, if you're in a situation where you've got parents to care for, there's a whole bunch of things that you sort of have to become an expert on, right? You've got to understand, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and senior living and just all the things that come along with that. If that's something those guys could talk about, um, uh, you know, folks, if you're interested in, in perhaps us doing a webinar about sort of how to care for aging parents from a financial standpoint, I, I'm, I'm guessing there'd be a ton of interest in that, Lance. Is that something yeah. those guys could talk about? Oh, yeah. yeah. We, we actually run those. We have regular, every month, we have two events that we run on our website. One is called the Lunch and Learn, and then we have Candy Coffee, which is kind of just a live interactive discussion. But, you know, every every month we're running, you know, discussions on Medicare, Social Security planning, um, you know, retirement planning, you know, all these things that impact uh, you know, people moving into or, uh, or 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 well into retirement and having to face those issues with caring for parents, long term care, all these type of things. So yeah, absolutely. You know, we can pick a whole range of topics that you want to cover, and and we can do something. Okay. All right. Great. Well, folks, if you're interested, let us know in the comments section below. I, mean, I will tell you, as somebody who's going through this right now, um, I mean, it's one of those things that, like, with a little bit of planning a decade or two in advance, you know it would have been a much easier process than having to just sort of like slam into all these challenges because I had an elderly parent who didn't really want to talk about this stuff. Um, and they've ended up in an unenviable position where uh, they they really don't have any assets. They don't really have any income. Um, and that's, that's made it a rough road in a lot of ways, but in a, a lot of other ways, Lance, it's amazing once you hit that level, what you can qualify for. Yeah. Um, and I know sometimes there's there's proactive strategies where you can sort of transfer assets to children and whatnot, and 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 make the elderly person on paper look like you know they they have nothing and and therefore they they qualify for some of these things. Not the case with my parent; they actually legitimately qualified for all this stuff. But it is amazing. I'm just amazed at the amount of medical care that she gets through the system uh, for free. Uh, that she's in senior subsidized housing that is incredibly affordable. It took us years and years and years to get her in there. There's massive demands and wait lists for these types of opportunities. So you need to know about them. So you know what to go for. But it's amazing once you qualify for this stuff, you know, what, 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 what you the services that you can get. And, um, uh, you know, it is amazing what we would, if we were paying out of pocket for what we have, it, I mean, it, it would bankrupt, bankrupt us extremely quickly, the level of, of care that she gets right now, largely for free from the state. So again, sort of being armed with what's out there can save you an awful lot of money. But what's crazy is, is like, there's no easy expert to go to who just says, oh, here's the punch list of things that you should do. Like yeah. we had to uncover each one of these things painstakingly on our own. And then look, and that's it. We, we cover that. You know, we we do seminars on this regularly. We do, we write reports on this stuff and and we do all kinds of educational uh, things on our website to to help walk, start people through this process. But you're absolutely right is that, you know, it's it's very complicated um, to get it's into. very different by state. Yeah, it's different by state. There's different issues. But, you know, this also goes back to one of the things, and, and I'm glad you brought it up. You know, we hear a lot of people like, oh, you know, healthcare in America is so unaffordable. It's not fair. We need, you know, we need European style medical care. Um, 
Well, the reason that it's expensive is that people that actually pay for healthcare are also covering all those that don't pay for healthcare. Uh, everybody gets healthcare in the country, whether it's free or paid for. Everybody gets healthcare. They get quality healthcare. Um, and yes, there's certainly flaws to the healthcare system. But to your point, Adam, you know, when you need healthcare, and particularly later on in life when it's the most expensive, the average senior is going to spend $350,000 on medical care in the last years of their retirement. So if you think you've got 500,000 in the bank for retirement, it's like, oh, I'm just gonna live off that. Just take 350 of that, shove that away because that's gonna get used on healthcare because we don't take care of our health. We don't eat right, we don't exercise enough, we don't do the things that we need to do. And so our retirement years are not the golden years, they're the medical years. And you're gonna spend a lot of money on that. And that's why annuities are important. You should be considering those when you're younger. Um, and preparing for that long-term care. Nobody wants to buy that, but it's incredibly important. Life insurance is incredibly important. These are the things that, that you can do to prepare yourself for those retirement years to make it easier, not just on you, but on your family. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, I will say looking at it sort of from the, the, the sidelines, you know, as we're going through all this stuff with my parent, I, I am just saying, my God, this is just not economically sustainable for a country. Like, <laughs> like we, you know, we're if, if she's sort of an average of what's being spent, it's just like there's just no way we could do this for the the you know tsunami yeah. of, of of boomers that are heading towards the same destination. Yep. Um, all right. So, uh, hey, real quick too, just uh, because we were sort of talking about both ends of the sandwich. Um, do your guys also have um, material in terms of you know planning for launching you know your children into the world in ways in which you can you know you can do that more affordably so like for example i live in california um we have a pretty good uh uc system here you know for for colleges um the values you know, the, the prices have been going up but the values are still quite good um the school my daughter's graduating from is honestly i think one of the best values in the country and it's an amazing school like i mean i went to an ivy league undergrad if i could do it all over again i would go where she is going she goes to cal poly in san luis obispo if anybody knows that school you know what i'm talking about um but uh uh, my younger daughter is in high school you know she's going to graduate soon she's looking at cal poly and a few other schools and they're, they're, they become really competitive. Um, you know, when you talk to an, a Californian from a generation ago, they're just shocked. And it, 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 it is sad because there are kids who have 4.5s these days that can't get into these colleges. And, you know, when you and I were going to school, Lance, you couldn't get higher than a 4.0, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, there's a great community college system here in the state. And there's a number of them that have like the, the two schools my younger daughter is most interested in, if she doesn't get into the school when she applies directly, there are programs where she can go to the community college for two years, which is dirt cheap. And, and many kids we know get grants when they go and they're actually making money to go to community college. And then as long as they get a certain GPA and take a, a certain amount of classes, the, the university that she initially got denied from has to take her for her junior year. So yeah. you go and grad, you you spend your second half of your college at that university. You get the diploma from there. Nobody's the wiser except you got it for half the cost. I mean, it's a pretty amazing system. It's amazing yeah. plan B. Now, not yeah. every state offers stuff like that, but there are just lots of ways like that to, to say, hey, look, you know, maybe we can't give you as much money as we want. But if you play the system a little bit here, you still may be able to get the outcome you want at a much smaller fraction of the price. Absolutely. Yeah, we have that same system in Texas, too. Uh, Texas A&M has a... Has a uh, junior college that they work with for that 
Great, great. So I'm just curious, is, is Richard and Danny, is this type of yeah, stuff, yeah. they have material around as well? Yeah, they, they, they cover all this stuff. All right. Well, folks, let us know in the bottom comment section if you're interested in the elder care, if you're interested in helping kids out, if you, which one you like more, if you like them both. Based on the demand, we will add that to the list of, of now the growing list kind of of, of webinars <laughs> that we're a little bit behind in delivering people. I know, right? We, we got to we, do. We, we do that insurance one quickly yes. because folks yeah, are just yeah. banging on me for that. Um, all right. Well, look, um, went a little bit longer today. Folks can't tell, but we had a couple of technical issues while we were recording this. So this has been kind of a Murphy's Law ridden uh, uh, shoot today, but I think we're ending it well. Um, Lance, uh, you, you, you did share a fair amount of detail of trades you guys have been making recently, but specifically this past week, what'd you guys do? Not, not this week. Um, we're kind of where we want to be at the moment. Um, so we're going to, we need to see this market kind of figure out what it wants to do here. And so probably in the next week or two, we may, may make some more trades. Okay. And and at the risk of making this um, video, maybe unbearably long for folks, I just looked at my notes and, and remembered that you'd, you'd started the conversation talking about that old public service TV commercial. It's 10 o'clock. You know where your kids are, right? Um, I was watching an interview um, with a human development specialist that, that really just caught my attention. I, I really thought you'd enjoy, and I'm sure have, have a reaction to this, where he said, there's a really marked difference between how uh, Americans have parented their children, probably the West, but specifically Americans, how they've parented their children uh, that started in the mid-90s. He said, there's a definite shift. He said, if you talk to anybody who's 40 years or older and you ask them, you know, what's your first memory of when you were able to go out unsupervised, right? When your parents just said, hey, you know, be back in time for dinner, right? And for people who are 40 or older, the uh, the answer is kind of like, ah, somewhere between five and eight, you know, was when I could go out in the neighborhood and play with my friends and then come back when I was ready, right? And if you ask somebody who's born after 1995, the answer is like 12 or 16, Yep. right? And, and you can thank Dr. Spock for that. That well, and also a big factor was was cable, was cable news, and it was um, you know like the poly class abduction, which happened not that far from where I live now in California, um, but also like America's Most Wanted, which was started by that guy um, uh, Joe Walsh. I can't remember his name, but uh, his child had been abducted, and that was a big reason why he got into the the business of trying to track down criminals, right? So it just became embedded in the national consciousness that, oh, the world out there is a lot more unsafe than I realized. And, and that was sort of the start of the helicopter parenting movement, right? And basically what this development uh, specialist said is, is going out earlier in life, the sort of five to eight range, he said that that's much more sort of normal for humans. And so we were out there socially exploring the world, interacting with, with people, um, playing games with friends, inventing rules, um, working through, you know, resolving disputes, things like that. And, you know, by the time we went off to college, you know, we were very resilient about kind of how the world worked and how to deal with adversity and uncertainty and all that type of stuff. Because we've delayed that so much now, by the time kids get to college, they just haven't had enough time to do that, which is why like things like cancel culture and everything that, you know, uh, isn't exactly what they want is perceived as a personal attack, right? And why microaggressions need to be tamped down and we need to have safe spaces and all that stuff. It, it largely stems from this, like depriving them of this decade of key social development. So you're smiling as I'm saying this. I know from previous comments you made on this channel, you, you must have some strong opinions on this. 
Oh yeah. Well, I mean, but again, you know, I grew up in the, I'm like you, I grew up at a time and I raised my kids this way too, which is, you know, you, you know, if, if my two boys would get in an argument, I'd send them in the backyard and they would punch each other in the nose and they'd figure it out. Right. I mean, that's, you know, and, and today they, you know, they're, they can deal with, you know, these issues. They, they, they're more like a Gen X than they are anybody else. They laugh at most of this stuff. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is how people deal with stuff. But again, these are important lessons. You know, we, we, you know, yes, people should not be violent with each other, but, you know, letting kids resolve an issue on the playground, nobody's going to get hurt, right? <laughs> you know, they may get a bloody nose, but they learn to resolve a difference and they learn, you know, they learn to have a bit of a backbone to deal with things and not be afraid of the world. It's like, oh, I've, I've been here before. I've, I've dealt with this. I know how to deal with it. And it gives them the ability and the character to, you know, make those decisions. Uh, there was a great comment the other day where, you know, it says you need to raise your kids to be absolute monsters and then teach them to control that. Because once that they know how to be a monster, they can deal with the world. The world doesn't intimidate them, but then they can control their ability to control their environment around them. And it's a great thought when you think about that. If we build warriors, you know, good warriors know how to control that warrior ability and be good productive citizens, but they can also deal with adversity when it comes their way. And that's the important thing. Yeah. And just tying it back to the previous conversation we had, and we've talked about this a number of times in the channel based on the research of the PhDs that wrote the, the Millionaire Next Door. Um, it's, it's, it's when we try to protect and shelter our children from adversity is when we're actually maybe doing them some of the greatest disservice uh, over the course of their lifetime, right? Because we 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 prevent them from developing the skills to deal with adversity and and around wealth building, the the data is just really clear that that self made wealth tends to get lost by the end of the second generation because that second generation wasn't taught how to, you know, become a successful entrepreneur or be a good steward of wealth, uh, because. You have to learn how to deal with setbacks and school of hard knocks and, you know, be an aggressive competitor in a competitive environment and all that type of stuff. So, um, I mean, it's important both for our social development, but but also if you just care about the, the dollars and cents, it's important for that, too. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, look, um, another great week, Lance. Thanks so much. Just a reminder to everybody, um, it's a crazy time uh, in these markets. It uh, looks like we're, we're you know, riding this uh this uh, AI euphoria right now, and as Lance says, that might continue for higher and longer than folks imagine, but there's still all the other risks out there that we talked about. Um, for the most people watching this, um, highly recommend that you navigate all this with the, the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands all the risks that we talked about here and takes it into account for the personalized portfolio plan that they're building for you. And then they're helping execute it by your side going forward. If you've got a great one who does that, absolutely stick with them. If not, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, then consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, um, maybe even Lance and his team there at RIA. Uh, to do that, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there. Uh, doesn't cost you anything, totally free, no commitment to work with these guys. They offer it as a free public service, just trying to help as many people as they can. Uh, if you've enjoyed this weekly market recap, uh, which Lance and I uh, do every week uh, and would like for us to continue doing this, please do us a favor, support the channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below. 
as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, as we head into this long Memorial Day weekend, what parting bits of wisdom do you have for folks? Have a great weekend. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy your family. And then don't forget to, uh, it is Memorial Day weekend, so don't forget those that have fallen. All right. Very, very good way to end this. All right. Uh, thanks so much, buddy. Look forward to seeing you next week. Everyone else, thanks so much for watching.